and welcome to the 16th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that makes you regret not updating your card prices. MTG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of Magic the Gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. I'm your host, James Chilcott, aka MTG Critic on the interwebs. My co-host is Travis Allen, aka Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, lovely Saturday afternoon today. Glad to be here and talking some magic finance with everybody. Our show is sponsored by mtgprice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at mtgprice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Travis, why don't you tell the beautiful people what we've got on deck today? Sure. Uh, this afternoon, we've got three segments. Our first segment is Top Movers. This is where we will look at the cards that have seen the largest price increases over the last week and discuss how they got there. Segment two is where we'll talk about cards to watch. These are the cards that James and I have our eyes on as uh, providing opportunities to make you guys some money. And segment three will be our metagame week in review. This week, we'll be discussing Grand Prix Toronto last weekend and a little bit of Grand Prix Tokyo that's running right now. So let's go ahead and jump right in on segment one, the top movers, right at the bottom. Do you want to kick us off this week, James? Sure. Our first top mover of the week is City of Brass. This is the original printing from Arabian Nights way back in 1994. Um, started the week around $74 for near mint copies, finishing about $107 um, with, for a change of $33 or plus 45%. Um, nothing much to see here, folks. This is just an original printing that is popular in old school magic, um, a format that continues to gain, uh, reasonable momentum and, uh, as a card, uh, an original printing of a relatively, uh, famous card from that period of time. I, it's no big surprise that copies have, uh, finally been cornered and, and hunted down to near extinction. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a familiar story we've heard here, uh, and also a similar story on our next card, which is Lake of the Dead from Alliances. This started the week at 550, uh, and is now at 8. That's about a 45, 50% increase, which is not the largest that we've had on here in a while, uh, but it's been kind of a quiet week, and we probably haven't seen the end of this. Uh, Lake of the Dead is a reserved list card that allows you to sacrifice a swamp for four black mana. So a pretty powerful effect. Um, I would not be surprised to see this show up uh, daily as we go forward um, in some of these price watch websites like on MTG Price. Uh, and this could end up at 15 or even $20 given that it's uh, on the reprint or on the reserve list. Uh, but where we are right now is because of uh, low, very low near mint supply. Yeah, I mean, the, the lowest price copy on TCG Player in near mint condition is about 10 with $3 shipping. So we're talking a couple of copies around 13 and then the next ones are over 20 already. So oh. yeah, I, w- I wouldn't be surprised to see this settle somewhere in the high teens as people start to pull copies out of binders. Yep. So next on our list, we have uh, the foil editions of the M12 printing of Quicksilver Amulet. This is an artifact for four mana that uh, allows you to tap and pay another four mana to put any creature from your hand into play. Um, I have seen this floating around in fringe decks in modern for a while. Um, Most recently it's been seen in Mardu Goryeo's Vengeance decks where 
um, players are using it to put Grizzlebrand and or Emmercool into play, um, usually out of the sideboard, but occasionally with main deck copies. Um, it's also got casual chops, and it's interesting in EDH. Um, the foils moved from 13 to 25 this week for almost a 92% gain. Um, stock is relatively low, so um, probably a decent chance this uh, continues some slight upward momentum. But uh, don't be scared to get out of this card if you've been randomly holding some in a binder. I agree, and I will point out that the Urza's Legacy copy, I'm looking at TCG Player, there is maybe three to four playsets in near mint copies, and then foils, there's one. Uh, one year mint foil at $20 and change. So uh, even though we've got the M12 one on here, I think they both probably have seen a little action lately. Yeah, it's um, also worth noticing that uh, MTG Price staffer uh, Douglas Johnson is over at GP New York City this weekend, uh, and he had posted a picture to Twitter uh, yesterday where the Channel Fireball hot list included uh, regular copies of Quicksilver Amulet being bought up by the prominent retailer at $8 US. Um, so clearly they believe that uh, the, even the regular copies are going to be displaying some upward momentum. And looking at the available inventory for you know, near mint uh, M12 copies, it would seem that they're probably correct and that this will settle in the mid to high teens when all is said and done. Yep. Uh, seeing it on the on the buy list, list on the floor like that is is pretty telling. Uh, James, you've, uh, you've watched this next card uh, on stream a little bit with uh, Jeff Hoogland, so why don't you tell us about this one? Sure. So last week, folks, uh, one of my picks of the week was Nahiri when she was sitting at around 10 or $11, and I called it to hit 20 and sure enough, here we are next week with Nahiri sitting in the number three slot for the week. Having done exactly that, she moved from $11 to 20 over the course of the week, picking up an 80% gain. Um, uh, it's a combination of elements uh, in play. She's seeing uh, increased standard play as people realize that she's actually a, uh, much more powerful than originally anticipated. She's also been featured uh, multiple times on uh, prominent uh, Star City Games uh, circuit competitor Jeff Hoogland's uh, daily modern streams where he's been playing Nahiri, um, I believe, as a two or a three of in his Kiki Core deck, um, using her to uh, occasionally... Uh, hide behind the plethora of creatures that Kiki Ford tends to field and get her up uh, high enough that he can pull a single copy of Emrakul out of his deck and onto the battlefield. Um, she's also just good for cycling through the deck and finding the cards you need. Um, if uh, Nahiri is indeed a modern playable card and is likely to become uh, a staple planeswalker in that format, then her movement uh, makes a lot of sense. The foils also jumps considerably this week, moving from $30 to $55, which is certainly pricing uh, those foils for success in Modern as a format. So uh, a card that if you got in last week when we told you to, feel free to get out of your regular copies now. That's a, a great gain that uh, gives you profitable trade-outs. Um, and if you believe in her in Modern, then uh, maybe you want to uh, consider getting out of those uh, those foils, just because even if you think that she's going to hold her position in that format, um, being priced uh, over $50 uh, means you can probably get out now and get back in on some copies further down the road uh, when the summer lulls set in. Yeah, I'm already seeing prices start to come down on this from where it was even just 24 to 48 hours ago. So I like uh, selling out of both of these here and then coming back around to it probably in like mid-August or something like that. Yep, I could see that happening. Uh, I'll take the next one. That's uh, Heart of the Water Veil from Battle for Zendikar. 
that is the blue time walk effect that can uh, awaken your land into a 6-6, six, six, I think. I started the week at about $2, and we are now seeing it over 5 uh, for almost a 200% increase. This showed up because it was part of a blue-green uh, ramp deck over in Japan. Um, I got wind of this uh, about a week ago from some of the other MTG Price writers who, who had picked up on it and uh, had run it to great success in their local metagames. I guess it was doing quite well here and abroad. I'll be curious to see if it shows up at New York. Um, but I... Uh, you know, it looked like just a pile of ramp and some part of the water veils and a few of some Ulamogs type of thing. So it uh, looks exactly like the type of deck I would want to be playing. Um, but again, prices have already begun to uh, restrict a little bit after the initial jump. So uh, I'd be getting out of these right now if you haven't already, because the chances are that this becomes a, uh, a major tier one deck is a lot slimmer than the price slinking back down towards two or three dollars. Sure. And uh, also of note, this was one of our picks from show number seven, where we called it at two dollars to hit uh, six to eight dollars. Um, so, folks, just you know, keep listening to those picks and figure out which ones make the most sense to you, because we're here to make you money and it's working. We really got to get one of those bells, one of the sound effect bells. Yep, we're gonna we're gonna work on that, <laughs> folks. So, final pick of the week, uh, sorry, final top mover of the week uh, is Brain in a Jar um, has moved from a dollar to three dollars, uh, two dollar gain for a two hundred percent increase. Saffron, Olive, and others have been using Brain in a Jar to do all sorts of funny, funky things that are unlikely to be top tier competitive so far. But there's also the fact that Brain in a Jar unlocks potential with uh, cards like Back and Call, um, cards that um can be fused um you can actually cast uh the alternate side of the card um which does give brain in the jar at least some long-term casual potential as having a very unique effect interacting with those cards and you know it's possible that um you know if that uh somebody figures out the right deck list they could make an appearance on the fringes of modern yeah I, you know i was uh very reluctant to see this do anything i just thought it was cute the wording on it was tough um, because it was really difficult to cheat the trigger uh but i saw a list pop up recently that was using it to cast the fuse spells because you could cast it um like on two for something like breaking and i think you were able to fuse it and cast breaking and entering i think was the trick with it which was which is where it needs to be for it to be an amusing modern deck you need to be able to do something like that so uh you know, again, we're going to see this slope back down towards a dollar, but uh, this is always going to be kind of out on the fringes as a curious, a curious stack. And then maybe someday down the road they'll print something, and suddenly this card will skyrocket. Yeah, and if you got in on these at a dollar, um, you know, trade them out on Puka Trade at, at three. The, there will be sustained long-term demand on the card. Um, over time, if you want to hold it for longer, looking for greater gains, I could see this easily being a five or six dollar card a couple of years down the road. Cards like Brain in a Jar are something where I'm usually less interested in this card in the engine, but when people start to figure out what it works with, I will start watching those decks and look for the cards in those lists that are underpriced, because then the recently printed artifact moves from a dollar to three dollars, but the like Kamigawa rare that's part of the combo goes from fifty cents to you know nine or ten dollars. So those are the cards to look for, sort of the 
the accompanying pieces, I think. Yeah, that's a very solid point. The uh, And I think both of us are holding multi- many copies of Back and Call, so hopefully they figure it out with that card in the list. Oh, God, please. <laughs> 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 All right, let's move on. Uh, there was a short week for Spikes, not a lot going on. Uh, so we are going to move on over to segment two, our cards to watch. Uh, looks like you've once again brought quite a few options to the table, James, so I am going to let you get started. Yeah, this week uh, I'm digging pretty deep on cards that are uh, being suppressed from Battle for Zendikar um, based on, you know, high volumes of that set being popped and many of the best cards in the current standard metagame um, already commanding, uh, uh, you know, high price tags. Some of the other unheralded long-term casual cards are at or near lows that I think are pretty appealing. So my first pick of the week is Zada Hedron Grinder um, with a timeline of long-term, so at least a couple of years out, confidence level of 7. Um, you can currently pick up this uh, Legendary Goblin at $0.50. Cents. Um, I would see this being a 3 to $5 card down the road. Uh, he's got a very splashy, very fun effect in casual. If you're not familiar with the card, he basically takes any uh, spell that is targeting one of your creatures and duplicates it for every creature you control. So if you target your creature with, say, a one-mana instant that gives uh, a creature plus one plus zero and draws a card, then all then multiple copies of that go on the stack. So it, it plays especially nicely with uh, effects that either pump your team or protect your team or are cantrips. And he's a fun card in EDH and, and Commander Circles. Definitely a kitchen table all-star and unlikely to see any kind of a reprint in, in, in the next few years. So this is the kind of rare that I'm happy to stock away a hundred of at fifty cents and and never look back. Now this is a type of card, and I'm curious to see if you agree with me here. But casual cards, I feel like come in two stripes. There's sort of your EDH card, and then there's your sixty card casual card. Um, so a card like Get Rog Monster to me stands out much more as an EDH type card, where your foils are going to be very valuable relative to non-foils. But Zada strikes me more as a kitchen table card, something players are going to put four of in their unsleeved deck. Um, so you're better off buying the non-foils on Zada than the foils uh, because of the type of casual players that like it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I would agree with that. And one of the reasons that he makes this list is that when he's played, he's going to be in a 60-card casual deck, he's going to be played as a four of because assumably he, he, he is a build-around card. He's mm-hmm. an engine. Um, and you're going to build the whole deck around him. You're going to put some some artifacts in, uh, in there to protect him. You know, your your uh, swift boots, uh, swift foot boots, or, um, you know, so, some equipment that's going to help him stay on the board. Uh, it's going to be, the, you know, the, ca- the, the dirtily casual goodness that um, you would expect. So on that basis, you know, it, it, he, he's very unlikely to ever get much below 50 cents. I mean... You could see some copies that's somewhere as low as 25, I'm sure, and it, it, at which point, you know, even better to snap those up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so, so, so let's go from a long-shot casual target to a modern staple. Tell me about your next pick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my next pick is Cryptic Command. Uh, I've got this on a mid-to-long timeline with a conference level, like a 6, a 6 to a 7. Copies are available out there right now for around $20, although I just checked TCG Player and it looks like um, you're probably in the 21, 22, 23 range. Uh, I like this up to about 35 which would be about a $15 increase. Um, you know, it's Cryptic Command. This card used to be like $50 or $60 back before it was reprinted. Uh, we have since seen 
cryptic command and blue decks in general sort of uh, fade away since Splinter Twin was banned and the Eldrazi uh, rose up in power. And that all sort of happened during the time period where Modern Masters and Modern Masters 2 cards were sort of suppressing the uh, value on cards like this. Um, so the, we have not had a format uh, ripe for increases uh, with blue cards and something like Cryptic Command. Uh, now that the Eldrazi is gone, uh, and we're starting to finally get away from these older printings, the prices can finally start to move, which we've seen on other cards uh, from these sets. Uh, we also have the fact that Ancestral Vision was just unbanned, along with uh, Sword of the Meek, which are both very blue cards, as uh, Ancestral Vision uh, most assuredly is. Um, so even though we're not seeing a ton of it right now, I don't think it's long before that eventually gets to the forefront of the format again. And given that this card used to be 50 to $60, I don't think it's a stretch at all to see this uh, well over 30 and possibly even into $40. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. I think it's a slow, steady gainer um, heading into Modern Masters 2017, at which point if they reprint it yet again, um, it's going to get knocked back down and might sit there for quite a long time. If it's not reprinted for the third third go around in that set, then um, I think at that point it has a very strong chance of popping up into the zone that you've got targeted. Mm -hmm. uh, what have you got next for us, James? So another rare that's um, been fooled around with in standard um, throughout the season but has never really gotten anywhere. Um, it was cut from the green-black aristocrats deck by the Channel Fireball team um, on the basis that it wasn't good enough. Um, but has all sorts of casual implications long-term, is Smothering Abomination. This is the 4-3 flyer for 4 that uh, forces you to sack a creature every turn, but every time you sack a creature, you draw a card. Um, another build-around engine-type card. It can be uh, had for as low as $0.25 cents right now. Easily, this card hits 2 to $3 long-term, um, and I think you're going to see some very nice trade-out gains down the road. Um, you'll be able to dump it on Puka Trade in a couple of years and, and thank me for getting you in this low. <laughs> you know, this is curious. I'm looking on TCG Player right now and I see that there are plenty of foil copies at like $1.50 or so, but the promo copy, there's like three and they're $10. I wonder what's going on there. Yeah, it, no idea. The All I know is that I, I have, in fact, tested this card in Standard, and while it didn't quite fit in the green-black Aristocrats deck, um, because they just wanted to move faster and, and do other things, they were looking to flood um, and already had plenty of sources of card advantage. The This is the kind of engine like Zada that when you're going to run it, you're going to run multiple copies. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, there's a flood of, of available copies, but get into that attrition matrix a few down years down the road where most of that stuff is floated under beds and into binders and boxes and, and closets and you know casual people are picking them up one or two at a time at your local store and, and all of a sudden the, the vendor wakes up one morning and realizes they've got to put it on the buy list mm -hmm. can you imagine if they reprinted Frexian Altar and Standard or something like that suddenly this card would be off to the races <laughs> yeah I mean we've got a few more sets before it rotates out so who knows we'll see it's still a 4-3 flyer for 4 with upside um, yeah, it, it has a long shot chance in standard, assuming something gets printed alongside it, um, or the the uh, aristocrat style decks are are looking for something to go over the top. Um, but 
yeah, as a casual card, it's plenty safe at 25 cents. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to miss when you're paying that cheap for these cards. Um, all right, speaking of mid-range flyers, my next card is Revile Arc? Revile Arc? Revile Arc? Yeah, I like Revile Arc. You like, yeah, I mean, I usually say Revile Arc, but I always wonder. Uh, I've got this also at a mid to long time frame, uh, although really it, it can probably be short, honestly. Uh, my confidence level on this is a 7. Uh, I'm looking specifically at the Modern Masters copies, uh, but the Shadow Moor, Eventide, whichever copies are also an option uh, if you can find them. But I'm looking at foils on this guy, and the Modern Master foils are an extremely low supply as far as I can tell. They're around $17 at the moment. Um, probably between 17 and 20. Uh, I don't think it's a stretch at all for this somebody to pick up the last maybe five to 10 copies that I can find. And suddenly this is a $30 foil. This is in every white deck in EDH ever made. And everybody wants their foil copy. Um, so, you know, this is a card that's probably going to be tough to just buy into. I, you know, I don't know if it's worth throwing cash at, but I would be trying to scoop these out of binders everywhere I could find them over the next week or two until we talk about this in segment one in uh, in a month. Yeah, I mean, the combination of play in multiple formats, the power, the sheer power level of the card, uh, the combo-tastic recursive nature, I mean, all of this screams uh, kind of card that pops out of binders at local stores on a regular basis. Um so yeah, I, I think that's a great pickup. Okay, so your next one is a curious one. Why don't you tell us about that? Sure. So, I mean, one of the things I've been looking at is is trying to figure out Eldrazi that have been undervalued um, and uh, haven't found any kind of a home. Um, one of the thing cards that I fooled around with a lot in fall that has now f- fallen to uh, extreme uh, lows is Sire of Stagnation. This is the 5744 blue-black um, Eldrazi that reads that whenever your opponent puts a land into play, uh, you draw two cards. Um, so obviously, um, that's a strong disincentive in Commander and EDH for anybody to be playing lands, puts a huge target on the creature's head, um, and it, it has uh, the kind of effect that will um, that will take over games in a hurry if people can't deal with it. Um, it's a mythic, and it's fallen to a dollar. Um, I could see it easily being a three or four dollar card down the road as casuals fool around with it. And uh, on that basis alone, I'm comfortable picking up 10 or 20 copies at that price. Yeah, I got to say, I'm not really wild about this card, at least back when it was initially spoiled. um, It just sort of felt like a bad consecrated Sphinx. Uh, But at the same time, at under a dollar, it seems so much safer than it did at the two or three dollars when I was looking at it before. So I am definitely uh, on board with this because the risk is so extremely low. Yeah, I mean, these are all cards that, you know, if, if you grab a few playsets to drop in the decks here and there um, and forget about them for a few years, you'll probably be, probably be pleasantly surprised once you catch them on a, a gains list somewhere down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Great, Cyrus Segnation, and uh, you're you've been busy this week. So, what's what's your next one? So, another uh, BFC mythic. Uh, this one with a stronger uh, pedigree in the casual circles is Dragon Master Outcast, which was a, a regular component in the Jeskai Black decks heading out of the fall. Um, it was a mythic from the original Zendikar block that got reprinted in BFC, um, and before the reprinting, it had peaked as high as fifteen or sixteen dollars US. 
It fell um, fast and hard um, down under 10 and has stumbled all the way down to $3. Um, but this kind of mythic, um, it generate first of all, it makes dragons. Um, and that's really all you need to know uh, to believe that casuals will find a use for it in decks down the road. And at $3, um, you know, I'm uh, lukewarm on the card. I'd love to see it get down to $2 if I can find copies in that range. That's a snap buy. Um, there were some copies in binders at GP Toronto that I picked up around uh, that price once you did the con currency conversion. Um, but even at $3, I could see this easily being a 6 or $7 card down the road. I don't think it easily regains the 15 it had before due to the total, uh, over the overall increase in available uh, copies. But uh, I could easily see it hitting 5 6 7 in a slow, predictable pattern over the next two or three years and being a good card to trade out at that point. Yeah, you, you brought up a good point. We talked about this briefly before we started recording, and I was kind of curious why this was here, but uh, I mean, this card was was quite expensive before the Battle for Zendikar reprint, and there was zero constructed play going on with it at that point. Um, so it makes a lot of sense that this, having dropped as cheap as it is, uh, could quietly increase over the next uh, months to get to a point where you're happy to sell out again. Um, especially if you're getting in at, at you know two bucks a piece or, or whatever it is right now, so uh, it's a it's a quiet it's quite a little pickup, but I think it is uh, well considered. Now, as opposed to all that jank, um, my next pick is uh, a slam dunk uh, modern format staple that I that is ex exhibiting movement I don't fully understand, and I think it's just a short term irregularity that we should take advantage of. Um, Court of Calling foils. I actually called this out. Uh, several shows back, maybe eight weeks ago, um, when they were readily available around $25. And this week, um, there are several copies up on TCG Player around $20. Um, keeping in mind that the regular copies that were also a call earlier on uh, in, the, in, in earlier episodes of the show have moved from about $7 to $15 in the same time. So you've got regular copies almost doubling up into the mid-teens and some foils uh, available on the market $5 below the $25 entry point that I called earlier um, with a target of $40 for the long term. Keep in mind that Court of Calling is probably one of the top three green cards in modern right now, and that Court of Calling slash uh, Collected Company decks are probably one of the top three decks in the format right now. Um, and you know, Court of Calling was was called as a pickup at two or three dollars a couple of years back when it was printed in M15, and uh, very few people um, got on the bandwagon when they should have. But you still have this opportunity to get in on the foils. Um, you know, there's not a lot around. There might be 10 or 12 copies, so whoever hears this first probably grabs them grabs them and moves on. Um, but even up, up back up at $25, where most of the copies are priced, there is relatively limited supply. There's only a single page uh, available on TCG Player right now. There aren't that many copies left on eBay. Um, this is a card that I expect to see strong movement and end up over $30 in foil uh, by the end of the year, and I think 40 isn't too far off after that, um, as long as that deck keeps doing well in the format. Yeah, I don't. I was really surprised to see this on the list because I looked and I'm like, wait, $20 for the foils? How is that possible? The non foils is 10 and this is a very important modern card. And lo and behold, it's definitely right in that region. So uh, I'm surprised to see it as cheap it is, as it is. And I think that this is spot on. I, you know, the original foils are in like the $50 range. Um, so I don't think that. 
you know, $35, $40 for this is unreasonable whatsoever, especially because I think the non-foil is going to keep increasing too. I think the non-foil could hit 20 Yeah, I mean, the non-foils are generally, there's a whole bunch of copies around 12 and then, you know, retail is somewhere around 15 in most stores right now. Um, but yeah, I could easily see Court of Calling hitting 20 this year um, once the next 100 copies or so dry up on the internet, which only takes, you know, 25 mm-hmm. new players to put it in an, as a four of in a deck. Yeah, yeah, it's it's not not difficult to get there. Um, all right, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about in our segment this week? Uh, nope, that should be it for our buy calls. Let's talk about the metagame week in review. Okay, segment three, we're looking at Grand Prix Toronto and Grand Prix Tokyo. Uh, what uh, what jumped out at you here? So I was actually on site at GP Toronto. Um, it was the first really big event in Toronto run by face-to-face games uh, in uh, collaboration between their uh, Toronto and Montreal uh, shops, and they did an excellent job uh, running the event. Um, most of the tech on the floor uh, was outsider tech that didn't really make the top tables, um, but there was some attention paid uh, to uh, two decks in particular that were a little bit of a surprise. First of all, uh, the trophy was taken home by Robert Lombardi on Esper Dragons, um, a deck that had been assumed to be kind of uh, no longer a part of the metagame, um, despite the fact that it also top aided uh, the Pro Tour, um, where it was also uh, considered to be something of a surprise. Um, and it just goes to show that the power of of uh, the dragons, uh, Silumgar and Ojatai, uh, in combination with strong a strong control shell, um, is a potential solution in the right hands. Um, and it leads me to wonder whether um, the deck would be doing better if more people hadn't already written it off. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a very good point. Uh, of course, the m- most of the rest of the top eight was filled with um, uh, copies of green-white tokens, which was probably the expected uh, winner coming into the tournament, and they did indeed put uh, two copies in the top eight. There was also Michael Shang in seventh place running Naya tokens, that was running four copies of Nisa uh, and uh, four copies of Oath of Nisa. Um, Oath of Nisa is definitely on my watch list as a long-term uh, pickup uh, that has potential in modern. Um, Nisa herself seems underpriced to me at $15, given the volume of play she's seeing in multiple decks as a four of and standard, um, and the fact that she's a small set mythic. Um, all of that makes me think that as long as some version of the Nisa deck survives into the fall, she probably tops $20 um, and ends up in in the $20 to $25 range. Um, she could just as easily fall off the wagon and move in the other direction. And depending on where your entry point was on her, that would probably be the deciding factor in whether you get off uh, in the near future or wait for further games. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what I thought was interesting was this Naya Ramp deck that's showing up in Tokyo right now, uh, which is running Ulenvald Hydra. And then you can tutor for Mirror Pool to then copy the Hydra and get a second Hydra and then, you know, lead that into a Rogue's Passage or something. You know, Ulenvald Hydra right now is like two bucks on TCG Player. And like now I'm looking at this, I almost feel like this should have been one of my picks of the week. Um, you know, this card is, it's not Primeval Titan, but there's a lot of room for a card to be worse than Primeval Titan and still be very good in standard. It's a mythic. Um, and it was in Shadows of Innistrad, so supply is on the higher side, but at the same time, it's got a while to go before it rotates. Um, so 
you know, at a dollar or two dollars, this card could easily become seven or eight if this suddenly slams an event. Uh, so I definitely like keeping an eye on Ulenvald Hydra going forward. And also because you can play this with the other card you talked about, Nahiri. I mean, it's a totally reasonable card to put in a Nahiri deck where you can... Um, Nahiri can help you get into the Ulenvald Hydra as Ulenvald Hydra helps you ramp into the other threats that Nahiri is going to tutor for. Um, you know, use your ultimate to find. So it's that's a curious card and a curious deck. Yeah, I mean... It- Again, we have a car, a mythic being under uh, appreciated and underrated when it was first revealed. People thought this was a poor man's primeval titan. It was kind of written off as being a bulk mythic. Um, but it's been showing some slow, steady gains on Magic Online uh, in the last week, moving from about fifty cents up to about a dollar forty. I mean, that's a triple up. Uh, so the 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 fact that you've got this mythic slowly inching forward on Magic Online, and you've got the Japanese players fooling around with what is essentially brand new tech in the format. I mean, nobody else is doing anything like this. Um, but what it, the power comes from the fact that they can use the Hydra to both search out these utility lands to kind of tip the balance of the game, but the, the keyword that's being missed on, on the Hydra is reach. Um, the fact that she can, uh, assumably you have about six lands when you play her, um, and she can block Avacyn profitably is pretty big game right now um and the fact that a lot of the decks that you're facing are either mono white humans or they're green white tokens or they're a bunch of mid-range creature decks that are kind of like three twos and and two threes um you know a five five or a six six hydra um that searches out a utility land copies itself is is going to set up a situation where it's going to be very hard to push through mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i'm i mean this is the, the the first day of the gp uh in tokyo we don't know how you know this deck is gonna is gonna play out um, so, but I, if it makes top eight, I would certainly be, uh, looking for an opportunity to get on, on in on $2 mythics that might potentially, uh, represent a brand new archetype that people will want to snap up and fool around with. Yeah. And, you know, even if this doesn't top eight, this is still definitely worth considering because of the raw power level and the way that the format could shift, um, and suddenly make this relevant. So even if it doesn't do this weekend, that doesn't mean it's not going to do well. Uh, and Hydras are reasonably popular casual cards. So, you know, Mythic Hydras are not a terrible thing to be have to have your hands on anyways. Exactly. Now, the other deck that caught my eye this morning uh, coming out of Tokyo was uh, an update to the Seasons Pass deck that people may recall John Finkel made top eight uh, uh, with. People had kind of written the deck off after the tournament, despite the best player of all time um, taking it into the top eight uh, of the Pro Tour on the basis that uh, the rest of his team didn't do that well with it. Um, their win percentage just wasn't all that impressive. Um, but the Japanese, one of the major Japanese teams, picked up the deck and realized that uh, uh, a calculation to include blue as a third color might be the solution to make it more viable in the format. So the the primary inclusion is multiple copies of Jace, um, Brin's Prodigy, you know, probably the, the card, if not one of the top three cards of the last year of Standard. Um, allowing them to dump additional cards into the graveyard via the loot ability, um, which then, you know, Jay's allows you to flash back potentially, or sets up an even better season's past when you've got more cards of varying cost and casting costs in the graveyard to abuse. It also let them, in, the blue splash also let them include copies of Dragonlord Silumgar, I believe, um, and uh, Silumgar's uh, command, which allows you to knock off planeswalkers, uh, kill creatures, and is a very good kind of anti-mid-range collected company uh, uh, deck kind of 
uh, you know, bullet. So um, that was a pretty interesting deck, and I'd be curious to see if this uh, keeps the momentum rolling for seasons past by making the top eight of the tournament. <laughs> I really like that the answer, the second level of any deck is, well, add Blue and Jace. Oh, are you playing humans? Add Blue and Jace. Are you playing green, black, seasons past control? Oh, add, add Blue and play Jace. And, and, and the part I love the most about that is that, again, a mythic that nobody thought was any good. Um, the Nothing gives me hope for the future of MTG Finance like the fact that every single set, multiple, multiple mythics and rares are undervalued, underappreciated, uh, improperly reviewed, um, and untested while people are commenting on them. And nothing could possibly be better for making money on the cards. Yeah, you would really think that we as a community might have kind of solved that, uh, but we haven't. We very clearly have not. It's over and over and over again. So it's it it's it's good for the game and it's good for people like you and I. The 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 number one piece of advice I can give, and we're not doing our topic of the week this week because we don't have a super deep topic to run into, but let me leave you with this, folks. If you want to get ahead of the curve on the cards coming out in a new set, there's only there's only one thing to do. Test. You, you need to mock up the cards when they're revealed, throw them into decks, and test the crap out of them. That's the only way you're going to end up ahead of uh, ahead of the pundits. There are so many people that are commenting on cards, both pros and finance guys alike, that don't have any idea what they're talking about because they haven't tested deeply enough with the cards. So if you if you want to get that edge that gets at you at ahead of the game and lets you pick up, you know, Thing in the Ice at $3 or Nahiri at $6, um, you know, this is the situation. Yeah, I, I I agree that there are a lot of cards that are very easy to dismiss. And then the first time you cast it, you go, oh, I see. Uh, and, you know, I'm guilty of this myself, as is I don't do a lot of that either. Um, but I try not to, uh, at the same time, too heavily dismiss anything that I haven't given a shot to. But, you know, it will involve Hydra. The other thing is you have to really be willing to listen and learn from your mistakes. I thought it will involve Hydra was pretty bad when it was first revealed. Uh, but, you know, I listened to people, people who cast it and said they liked it. After some discussion, I'm like, you know what? I was wrong. This card's actually pretty powerful. And now I'm willing to think about it. Um, so, you know, we're not doing a full segment, but that would be my quick little tip is uh, even if you get a card wrong the first time, uh, don't be afraid to admit that you were wrong and learn from your mistakes. I mean, in some cases, it's going to be very, very difficult to get out in front because some cards are just good because the metagame um, demands that they be good. Uh, but they're, you know, some cards are, are their power is only revealed through testing. So test away. Um, so there's one, just one more thing I wanted to point out. Uh, cards to, that people should be looking to get out of right now. Um, I would be moving out of all of the Dragon Lords um, from uh, Dragons of Tarkir. Um, all of them are seeing occasional play, but none of them are seeing dominant four of play. And they are only going to be heading downhill from here as we get towards the fall. Um, these are cards that are going to be excellent long-term casual pickups when they hit their bottoms towards late summer, but definitely move out of those uh, at, at the moment. It's also possible that Pyromancer's Goggles has peaked and, is, and may not regain a top spot in the metagame. Um, it certainly seems to be uh, uh, showing up in fewer and fewer numbers at top tables as the standard season progresses. And uh, again, will be a great pickup if it gets back under, you know, th three or four dollars. But anything over 10, I think if you're holding a bunch of copies looking for future ga further gains, um, Nat, you might want to consider getting out to to prevent further losses. Yeah, I was really bummed when 
Parametrics Goggles did so well in Standard because I had so had that card on my radar as something to pick up later on, and it just hadn't quite gotten cheap enough. And then they went and spiked it in Standard and ruined all my plans. (laughs) (laughs) All right, James, that's a wrap for this week. Where can our loyal listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTGCritic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Okay, and uh, my name's Travis Allen again. You can find me on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I'm also uh, right every Wednesday at MTG Price, and I show up occasionally on the webcast Cartel Aristocrats. And I would like to remind our listeners to check out the MTGPrice.com Pro Trader service. For just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year, you can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. Okay, that brings us to our the end of episode 16 on this gorgeous Saturday afternoon, uh, and I really enjoyed being here with you today, James. Thank you, Travis, and we'll see all of you next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance. Mm-hmm.